Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to be looking at culture in the vertical, using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior. Uh, and joining me today as my co-briefer remotely, she was here last week, and it's uh, back to, I suppose, her co-host, Hannah Hickman. Hello, Hannah. Uh, we're also joined uh, by Danny Thibodeau and Davion Harris, and we have a very special guest coming in today, uh, Jessie Tarlov. She is the head of Insights over at BDG. She's a Fox News contributor, and she is now a, a new friend of Sparks and Honey, and we wanted her to come in today uh, and talk with us a little bit about some insights that she has seen and we have seen in the world of parenting, and I'm, uh, I'm glad that we have put together a panel of some parents, some non-parents, um, and uh, what we really wanted to dig into today was talking about Gen Alpha, the newest uh, generation of kids. I mean, like, you know, we got a whole week to talk about uh, Gen Z. We had to at least pick up one, and I swear <laughs> to the Gen Xers watching, eventually we'll get to them, uh, too. They need a little love as well, but I think what we wanted to do today was to just uh, dig in a little bit and ask ourselves... You know, this big question, what unique challenges and opportunities do the parents of Gen Alpha face? And, and how are parents evolving their behavior to create kids who are ethical, curious, and, and savvy in a generation where that might be easier than before and maybe even more complex? So I'm really excited to dig into this. We don't get to talk about Gen Alpha a whole bunch. We also don't get to talk about parenting a whole bunch. So I'm thrilled to see the insights that you, uh, Jesse, are bringing and, uh, and what the system can pop up. So um, we did pull up, you know, it's something like 10,000 signals here, again, from all over the world, Cyprus, Great Britain, the U.S. I really wonder what they're writing about Gen Alpha in, in, in Cyprus, but we'll have to come back to that. But we can start with our elements of culture here, our proprietary trend taxonomy. And this is where we get to see kind of what our system uh, sees at that intersection of Gen Alpha themselves and really raising uh, this very unique generation of kids. And Unsurprisingly, Kidult, our, our trend around uh, adults behaving like kids and kids behaving like adults, pops up here. Um, you know, we have uh, meme culture, which is our element of culture uh, about, uh, you know, digital conversations. We're going to look at something from Reddit a little bit later, which will help know that makes sense. I don't know. There's a lot here that makes sense to me. Um, Hannah, I know that you, uh, Hannah was like, I want to talk about the weird ones here. So, Hannah, <laughs> let me throw you camera culture, that one, number 13. Why do you think that's here, and, and are you going to show us photos of your daughter? <laughs> yeah, I have a slideshow prepared full of photos of my daughter. I, I mean, I, listen, camera culture comes up a lot when we talk about millennials as a generation who sort of came of age alongside the, you know, having a camera at our fingertips at all time. And it obviously, cute kid pictures. Who doesn't want that? But what's really interesting to me about this one is when we think about camera culture in the context of the person who is being photographed, and there's going to be a lot of conversations as Gen Alpha age about things like privacy. Mm. Do they want to be shared on their parents' Instagram or, you know, for those uh, more savvy parents, their parents' TikToks? I think we're going to see a lot more conversations as, you know, Gen Alpha comes a, of age and starts to gain a little bit more independence about where and how they want their parents sharing pictures, information of them via social media. I love that you bring up TikTok because you think about those accounts that people have for their kids and they sometimes like sign them over to the kid when they're old enough and be like, these are your photos to manage now. What do you do with TikTok when you have one of those that, it, you know, 10 million people see a video of you saying, 
something stupid. Well, we may just be figuring that out um, today. Um, well, let's dive into our, our signals here, and we'll talk a little bit about who Gen Alpha is in the first place, right? Um, if millennials are the children of baby boomers and Gen Zers are the children of Gen Xers, it stands to reason that Gen Alpha, the youngest cohort born today, uh, between uh, 2010 and I think what we can assume will be sort of the mid to late 2020s, um, will be the children of millennials with a lot of similar attitudes to match their parents, at least according to this article. Um, since they're young, the way in which we can sort of guess that some of their consumer values come a little bit from the way in which they're parented, but there is also some, some early uh, evidence about what's going on here. Mark McCrindle, the man who coined the term Gen Alpha, tells NC State University here in this piece that, quote, as health-conscious caretakers, millennial parents seek out a lot of information about the products they buy and expose their kids to. From toys to clothing to, to food and personal care products, they love to know the best, uh, that, that the kids are getting the best brands, uh, and they choose only the safest, cleanest, and highest quality uh, uh, products. Um, he goes on to suggest that even from a very young age, Gen Alpha is more than aware of what they like, um, but also uh, like their uh, discerning millennial parents, they also apparently, according to this man who coined the term, are a generation that's going to be really into what's best. Quote, Gen Alpha uh, is, using, uh, is used to being lavished with the best brands and best products. These children are more self-aware of knockoff brands and competitors, and they tend to prefer higher quality brands, uh, market leaders, and first movers within a product category. And at first I read this and thought that was insane. And then I thought about the way in which a four-year-old can tell the difference between, you know, uh, uh, the different kinds of tablets they're handing them. And you're like, oh, they are very aware of brand and taste uh, from an early age. So that's definitely a unique set of values, I think, for, uh, for someone to hold. And, you know, I think it's one thing it's worth thinking about throughout the briefing is asking ourselves how millennials and some Gen Xers may pass these values on to Gen Alpha and what that means both for the parents and the children themselves. So I guess the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, is that thesis right? Do you think that these, uh, these young kids are going to pick up uh, cues from their parents and have them forever? Or are they going to toss them out the window? Because I think, I don't want to speak for any baby boomers in the room, but um, I know baby boomers would tell us that they, you know, didn't want anything to do with the greatest generation, that they invented their own youth culture. So, um, Jesse, as our, as our guest, why don't we start with you? Do you imagine that these are going to be behaviors that they pick up in, in total or find their own way forward? Everyone is going to find their own way forward. Yeah. And I have a, a new baby, so the littlest Gen Alpha, five-and-a-half-month-old Gen Alpha. Uh. Um, but parents obviously have a tremendous effect on what their kids are into, certainly what they wear, what they're using, what they're playing with. I read in uh, one of the signals that you sent out that kids start to have brand recognition at three years old. Yeah. That's pretty young to be able to say, this is the doll that I know that my friends have. This yeah. is the one that I want versus the one that you're trying to give me, et cetera. But I really look at Gen Alpha as the actualization of what people talk about Gen Z is. Hmm. So Gen Z is a di the digital native generation. No, actually, Gen Alpha is. You still can find Gen yeah. Zs that are not, uh, did not grow up on a tablet, right, that were not immersed in streaming culture, et cetera. With Gen Alpha, especially with how technology is being integrated into the school system and how readily it's being used by people in positions of power and for education, they're the digital natives here. Um, and what's exciting about it, and I have my own baby boomer mother in the audience. Um, <laughs> so, friends and family uh, day at Sparks and it Honey. It is friends Love and family. It. Well, BDG via Sparks and Honey. Um, <laughs> and I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, I think that the impact that millennial parents are going to have on Gen Alphas is stronger than previous generations because we have switched. We're kind of 
that turning point generation for becoming purposeful, values-based consumers, mm-hmm. right? So every parent wants to do right by their child, but they're not necessarily silent generation parents or baby boomer generation parents are not necessarily paying double for the eco-friendly option. But we know that millennial parents are going to do that. And we did a study um, for Romper, one of our parenting publications, four years ago, where this trend was starting to cost, and it was something like 35% of parents said that they'll pay more. Now that's over 50% hmm. that are willing to do that. And obviously, you have to be in a good financial position to be able to do that. But millennials will sacrifice to be able to. Yeah. They'll say, I'm not going to get this because I want to make sure that my laundry detergent is seventh generation mm-hmm. or that the toys my kids are playing with um, have no pesticides on them or are produced um, somewhere that doesn't use child labor. And so Gen Alpha can really jive with our values, yeah. right? Yeah, and I, I, that, that's such an interesting statistic because I, I hear that and ask myself, does that mean that there are more purpose-driven millennials aging into parenting? Does that mean that the, parent, the millennial parents just got more access to cash to sort of spend on that? They're a little further in their careers. They can buy the $10 detergent instead of the $6 uh, detergent. But in some ways, I mean, and that matters for us as cultural strategists and people trying to connect, but the overall effect of 15% more people willing to invest in that is... It's huge for the market. Yeah, it's huge. Uh, Damian, do you have some thoughts? Yeah, it's funny. I think of, as you were talking, we we talk about digital natives, but I almost see Gen Alpha as as purpose natives to that point because it's less of a question to them of whether they're making that right sustainable choice, and it's just kind of inherent, whether it's because their parents are bringing that forth or because it's at their disposal. Um, They're just thinking and, and learning in a way where they see sustainability, they see climate or all all these other issues. My son, who's five, was telling us the other day because there was a bee that was like getting in the house, and before you know, our instinct was to, to you know kill it, but to to (laughs) swat it out. And he's like, no, no, they kill mosquitoes and they're part of our ecosystem. And he's, right, educating us. Right, 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 of course. Um, And similarly, I think, you know, just to the point of brand, it's funny because my, I have a five and a seven-year-old and my first grader, she's talking with their friends. They are talking about, you know, who has Teslas and who has electric cars and not because they're trying to name drop, but because they're in the context of electric cars and they understand that it's not gas-powered, and that's better for the environment. So it's just really interesting how yeah. they're talking about brands and their choices, but it's through this purpose, ethical context. I think purpose natively, purpose native or whatever is such an amazing turn of phrase, and I'm going to put that in a, in yeah. a, in a deck. One thing <laughs> yeah. is that I quickly looked at the top-selling parenting books on Amazon before this briefing today, and all of them really talk about how to raise a kind child, how to raise a child that um, that really cares about others, that yeah. knows that you love them, and how to deal with their feelings, and I think that goes very nicely with, with the purpose native side of things, or just better understanding, you know, why you use certain things and how to interact with other people. Millennials are more aware of these things. We're doing a lot more, um, um, a lot more reflection of who we are, who we want to be, who we want the next generation to be. Yeah. So um, now that we know who Gen Alpha is and a little bit about the ways in which uh, the millennial, their millennial parents might be impacting them, I think we should dive in the deep end. And Hannah, tell us about a parent's guide uh, to the metaverse. Yeah. So, you know, as Sparks and Honey, we've been talking about the metaverse clients for a few years now. 
we are a ways off from the the fully you know interoperable metaverse that's much more in the, the future. But what we know is that right now, Gen Alpha are spending an immense amount of time on the online gaming spaces that are really making up the proto metaverse. Mm. So over half the kids in the U.S. are deep into the the mini metaverse world of Roblox. You know, that certainly being one of the the biggest. And there are numerous parties who are trying to understand what does this mean for for kids. Uh, you know, we we. Have have a, a sense or a starting sense of some of the implications of Web 2, of social media, on mental health, on their perceptions of the world. And now we have to figure out how will the metaverse change all that? So we have, you know, for instance, scholars who are studying the metaverse's impact on education, you know, where you can have a, an augmented reality t-shirt that is allowing students to study anatomy. On the other hand, you have policymakers who are trying to unravel what data privacy or safety and security might look like in the metaverse for children if you know, were in a world where everyone's presented by an avatar. So parents are, are stuck just trying to figure out what does this all mean and how do I keep my kids safe? And I think it's really interesting here to talk about the context of millennial parents who you know grew up or, or were in their young adulthood when social media really took off and have witnessed some of the benefits and also some of the downsides and are now trying to figure out how do I keep my kid safe in this rapidly evolving space of the metaverse. So, you know, question for the, the panel here, we're coming from a context where children's content used to be heavily regulated by broadcasting corporations, government organizations. The web has completely decentralized this. We have children who are watching, you know, unlimited amounts of, of YouTube. And there's a lot of solution from big tech companies, from smaller brands that are offering parental control, monitoring of online activity. None of them offer a perfect solution. With the kind of emergence of the metaverse, this new experience, how do you think that specifically millennial parents are, are going to be seeking solutions for monitoring their children's safety in the metaverse? Are they going to require or ask different things of corporations or of government entities when it comes to really stepping up and making sure that the metaverse is a, a safe place for children? I mean, it's a huge question. Uh, Davia, did you want to start? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's funny. It's it's uh, obviously top of mind when you have kids. And I think, you know, definitely at the start of the pandemic, when for many of us parents, we was just trying to get by and more screen time than than ideal. Um, but to be honest, I think it's, you know, it's one part of the trade offs that we all sort of are, are living with in terms of privacy and access, whether it's information or not knowing exactly what your kids are watching. And I think it's, you know, as a parent, it's it's making sure that you're doing all you can to put in place the sort of permissions, restrictions, et cetera, and deleting apps and making sure that they understand what they can and then also monitoring where you can. But then also it comes just to be realistic about it. I think, you know, it does come with the convenience aspect with the sort of, you know, educational components because, you know, for instance, we have policies during the week where you can, they can have the screen time. So we're not just anti-screen time, but it's certain types of yeah. content that they have. So I think it's a balance and where parents just have to, you know, really hone in and, and talk to children about what they are allowed to watch and monitor and, and try to regulate where possible. Because I think the reality is it's it's not going to be on brands or corporations to step up and necessarily do that. Yeah. Kristen, do you want to add to I was just going to say, I mean, I have an 11-year-old, and so I, the conversation might be slightly different. But 
she's coming back at me asking and telling me that these are the jobs of the future. So there's, I think there's also a different angle. And in some respects, I know we just had this conversation talking about, you know, influencers, and now everybody is an influencer in some way. And so right. there's this other piece that I think that is always, at least in the back of my head, where I, I try to squash all of that. But the truth is, is that that is kind of, you know, a huge something to consider I think for you know for the future and how do you weigh that with everything else that you've just mentioned I mean uh, Jesse I've been very well behaved and have not asked you about politics for almost 15 minutes I applaud uh, thank you my my self-control do you think that this is a space maybe for some policy answers maybe for some states to experiment to figure out like how do we open up a metaverse that's safe for kids Uh, especially as we're having this whole conversation right now about age regulations and and when people need to have access to things that could be potentially dangerous. Elizabeth Warren hat on. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I I think that this is somewhere um, that politicians, um, especially ones who are very distrusting of big corporations and the ones that are, you know, behind some of the biggest games, obviously, um, and places for kids to hang in the virtual world um, are headed towards. I think Adding on to your very great point about whether it's going to be on corporations, I think it's two-parted. I think that there will be pushback on these org- on these corporations, and we've seen, you know, Microsoft has something that's come out, Google has something that's come out, um, and that working in conjunction with the government to try to police this um, to be a safe place. I have a very close friend of mine is the head of communications for YouTube for EMEA, and majority of her team spends their time policing YouTube channels for issues of child pornography, mm-hmm. for... Um, Terrorism is something that's really you know, popular to spring up there. And right now, the metaverse looks fun. Like, I've, I've been in Minecraft. That seems yeah. fun. Um, but you know that sick people and sick organizations in a lot, in a lot of cases are going to find a way to get in. The other part of this, though, and it relates to Danny's points about the books that she was seeing that are top trending for parents, and we found this. We have a new study out um, of millennial and Gen Z parents and have found that the top skills that they're emphasizing for their children are soft skills. Um, right. So the top word, uh, honesty, empathy, loyalty, self re- <laughs> excuse me, self-reliance. This is a big departure from where parents were just obsessed with success, right? And everyone's definition of success is different. But it really had to do, where are you going to college? What kind of job are you getting? Yeah. Will you be able to own a home? The definitions of an American dream the American dream. And it's so fundamentally different. And I think that impacts also parents' comfortability with the metaverse, because I'm sure you have very honest and loyal five and seven-year-old who are going to come and tell you something, right? They're going to say, hey, mom, because you're not going to freak out. And they also know that about millennial Mm -hmm. parents, that you're going to listen to them and treat what they're saying with respect. This thing happened, and then you can go in and make a decision about whether you need to police screen yeah. time or notify the company behind the game yeah. or whatever it is of, of what's going on. So I, I think there's room for everywhere to get in. But government government is coming for all of this. Yeah, and look, it's an interesting... It, it, it's funny you think about... and I'll stick political for one second. You think about security moms, right? And the whole idea that when people have kids, they often become much more focused on questions of safety, right? And mm-hmm. that often leads people down one other, down a slightly different path politically, right? Sometimes it makes people turn a little bit to the right, but I'm fascinated by the idea of saying, of speaking to questions like uh, metaverse policy, right? And is that a way for people, whether they're a politician or a brand, to connect to these parents and say, 
I'm going to talk to you about the actual issues of safety that you're facing, not these big amorphous ones about are we going to be nuked by Vladimir Putin, but really, like, how do we create safe and engaging environments for your kids uh, online? And so I think you're right. I think the opportunity is really ripe, not just for some interesting regulation and experimentation, but also for anybody who wants to build that brand of, of, of safety, of, of being a trusted partner, getting into the metaverse early for kids is a great space for that. Um, let's talk quickly about this signal here as well, coming out of Florida and our little conversation about policy. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an interesting picking back of what you were talking about, Ben, creating safe spaces. Many queer parents are finding that more difficult than ever. You know, in Florida, we have the colloquial known don't say gay bill. It's officially named the parental rights in education, which a lot of you know queer parents find a gross misnomer as their rights are really not included here. Republican lawmakers in Florida have said that the new law protects parents' ability to decide how or when their elementary school-aged children learn about sexuality and identity. But for queer parents, they're worrying that children and families will have to hide who they are in the classroom or face very scary legal repercussions. So we talk a lot about the rise of Gen Z or Gen Alpha children who are identifying as LGBTQ+, but we also need to acknowledge that more children than ever are being currently raised by openly queer parents. Mm. And that's really going to change policy landscapes and going to change a lot of decisions that families are making. Uh, we know that the between 2 million and 3.7 million people younger than 18 in the U.S. have a queer parent. It's according to to a 2016 analysis from the Williams Institute. Uh, from the 2019 Census Bureau, we found that approximately uh, 191,000 children were being raised by two same-sex parents. So when we look at bills like this or, or bills like the, the one proposed in Texas that would designate providing medical care to transgender youth as child abuse, it's clear that being a, a queer parent is becoming more dangerous in certain states. So I'm curious for the, the um, you know, panel, do we think that these developments are going to affect where queer parents choose mm -hmm. to live, accept jobs or plan for their future? Are we going to, you know, see a world in, in which uh, as queer families think about what it means to be a family entity, they are, you know, choosing to to live and put down roots in spaces that feel safer to them? Danny, do you want to start? Well, we know that LGBTQ plus communities um, tend to live in metropolitan areas. Um, there are just higher numbers of people in those areas, but it's also a socioeconomic issue. So if you think about like so many people, millennials, for example, we're talking about millennial parents moving out to the suburbs, um, that provides, that, that's another area in which we need to think about its socioeconomic status. Who can afford to stay in the city where you feel safe? And when you go out to the suburbs, can you still feel safe there? Um, so those are two things that came to mind as, as we were looking at the signal specifically. Yeah, and it's going to be weird. And I mean, you've spent some time living in Austin. It's going to be really interesting in a state like Texas, where you're going to have you know, communities like Austin and Houston, where people uh, feel free to, you know, where, where gay couples are raising kids, and that is something that's considered perfectly normal, and a 45-minute drive away, that's going to be something that's really fraught. And I do think the big issue with trying to regulate this stuff is that you can force the gay parents out, but the gay kids or any kid living there may end up being LGBTQ. So it doesn't matter if you make it uncomfortable for, for gay parents living there. You're still going to have to, these people in, in, in your community, and let's be real, these laws are written in in such a way where they are, you know, designed to functionally punish people for uh, for their sexual orientations and, and try to enforce some sort of rigid moral codes. Mm -hmm. 
Um, let's actually keep moving here out of politics and instead take things to brands uh, for, for a second. Um, young kids and brands are a funny thing, right? They can be really young and still keenly aware of the difference between Marvel and DC, YouTube, and uh, let's say TikTok. Um, Adweek reports that a year-long poll of 30,000 kids and teens from research consultancy Beano Brain asked Gen Alpha what they were currently chatting about, coveting, and wearing. And I'll read a quote here. Um, With all the TikTok boom among teens, marketers may be surprised to learn that YouTube emerged as the decidedly coolest brand for the boys and girls question. I don't think that's a surprise. I feel like they should have known that. Um, Netflix and McDonald's took the second and third places, respectively. Amazon, Disney, Apple com- uh, completed the top five. Now, Minecraft, Nike, Nintendo, and Roblox came in at numbers eight, nine, and ten, respectively. So the research also uh, reports that Gen Alpha, as young as they are, have some rather advanced views of brands. Researchers found that, quote, not only do youngsters expect depth and breadth of content uh, and next day delivery is standard, but they also want to see a sense of guardianship of the planet and giving back to uh, from brands. So obviously watching out for the bees. I love the idea of being horrified that something would take more than 24 hours to be delivered. Um, but uh, Jesse, I might start with you here because I know you guys have been engaged in a bunch of research about about parenting and perhaps some related topics here what do you make of this data does this does this match with a little bit of what what you guys found and does it suggest anything that entertainment is the top and maybe not sort of toys and i don't know uh the clothing or whatever might have been in a in a different generation well playing is all too often on a device so it's not that surprising um that we're gonna have entertainment brands or digital brands for that mcdonald's is what really stuck out to me because I know they have a salad option, but (laughs) the salad still has like 800 calories somehow. And I'm just going to choose a couple burgers (laughs) Um, or at least a single cheeseburger uh, in spite of that um, or up against it. And what McDonald's has done, that's something really important for this millennial gen alpha relationship is they've made something that was very cool for us, like getting a happy meal Mm -hmm. retro and cool for young kids, right? right? And so these brands being able to take a little bit of an older generation's time, right, and using the same color scheme. Obviously, they're still using, you know, yellow and red, but there's a lot around the use of pastels is something that's very signature for millennials Mm -hmm. and now getting used as well with Gen Alphas. um, Muted colors, um, anything that looks Scandinavian pops to both uh, the parents and the kids. And so you can see with the McDonald's that they found a way to get in there, right? To say, okay, how are we going to reinvent ourselves? What kind of events are we going to be throwing? What kind of athletes? I still think that things like being a sponsor of the Olympics, stuff that matters, Mm -hmm. right? And that kids can see that, right? That they are all over the Olympic village. I mean, hopefully we have an Olympics where people can go um, Uh, (laughs) coming up. Eventually we'll get one of those, yeah. Yeah, but um, I think that that's important. And then I was happy to see that Nike was still in the top 10 because, you know, from my research and just everything that, we see in terms of the coverage that we have at BDG, et cetera. Nike has just been getting it right. Since they took the bet on Michael Jordan, like Uh, they're on the precipice of um, all this values-based. And and I I love this too, because uh, not only is Nike a a fascinating brand, but Supreme is very interesting to me. Because I have noticed that there is, uh, this is with my my own nephew, who is uh, sort of, uh, well, he's like nine, so he's still Gen Alpha. Um, But other people I know who have kids about that age, that there's like a switch that flips, especially for certainly American boys at about eight, when suddenly they are aware of brands like Supreme and that becomes something cool. And they all sort of look at some other major apparel brands and think that's lame, that's for 
children. I might bring Hannah in here for a second because A, you're in LA and B, you've worked on some of our entertainment properties. And I love what you were saying about nostalgia. Um, Hannah, why is there a reboot of uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers coming out? <laughs> Who is that for and how might we tag that to this? Why? better question is why not? Why did it take so long? I mean, it, it was funny when we were looking at the zeitgeist map and we were talking about Kiddle being one of the top trends, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that that kind of goes both ways where millennial parents are, are going to be more interested in co-watching content with their, their children. We're seeing a, a sort of erosion of the division between experiences, content that are for adults or for children. So, you know, as a millennial parent myself, who was exploring some of Disney and Pixar movies with my my toddler, there's definitely a, a difference in the ones that are, are you know, squarely made for kids yeah. and the ones that have a little bit of a wink and a nod for parents. And especially, you know, millennials are obsessed with anything nostalgia related. I think we'll see a lot of those, you know, types of content that informed our childhood being remade for a, a gen alpha audience, but also with the intent that this is something that parent and child can enjoy together. Yeah. I wonder if also, I mean, just thinking about the nostalgia theme plus this sort of, and we're going to get to this, but the uh, helicopter parenting, over-parenting involvement, however you want to call it, uh, combined creates, I mean, we were talking about purchasing power last week. I mean, it's almost like this supercharged (laughs) between the kids that are are super immersed in seeing all of these brands and content everywhere. The parents are involved. They're excited about it because it's bringing something forth and involved in the parents' lives or the kids' lives. It's just interesting to think about how that mashup creates, you know, an additional sort of advantage for brands Mm -hmm. that are really trying to connect with both and you're getting them both at the same time that way. So, Danny, does that mean to connect these? Does that mean, because we've also talked a lot about how Gen Z loves nostalgia, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have to have a different nostalgia strategy for Gen Z and for millennials? Uh, Or is it like a life stage nostalgia strategy where it's like, One for the young people who don't have kids and one for the young people who do have kids. So one of the Gen Z projects that I worked on recently, we were talking about how Gen Z experiences time on a continuum. So it's not necessarily nostalgia for them. They might be discovering something for the very first time. Friends, for example. Uh, So I previously used to work with Jesse. And one of our interns was obsessed with Friends. And Friends ended before this girl was born, right? But she she was experiencing it for the first time. So for her, it's not nostalgia. For her, it's just a show that she likes. Um, And so it is a different strategy just because of the time and the place and the way that that content is consumed. For us, it was appointment viewing. For them, it's found this thing on Netflix and it seems to be really clicking with me. Yeah, um, I love that. Okay, let's let's keep moving. We'll do we'll, we'll we'll go through a couple more signals here before we get to the one that I know everyone's champing at the bit to talk about. Um, I did think that we we should really quickly address screen time, right? We can't talk about people watching stuff with their kids without talking about screen time. And, you know, uh, just a really quick overview here, obviously, screen time changed in the past two years, right? It was seen as sort of like perhaps a necessary evil before the pandemic. And when you're stuck inside for a year and a half, suddenly it becomes the kind of thing that you've come to terms with. And and just as you were saying, Jesse, you know, kids, I think they're very aware of screen time, but it's also something that they that they deal with in, in school. You know, that they're talking to their friends on it. It is a fundamentally 
different experience with digital screens than even Gen Zers who might only be 10 years older than them, right? And so this article talks about people from Google to Microsoft to Apple who are these blue chip names who are making more and more parental controls when it comes to screen time and perhaps asking themselves some questions about what does that look like today compared to what it looked like when the innovation pipeline was created two, three years ago. Um, but obviously there's just a lot of questions here about sort of what that means. And um, Damian, I may pick on you because your kids are the oldest here. Um, <laughs> how, do you, how have you seen screen time evolve in the past couple of years? Do you agree with the general thesis that it's changed a little bit? And do brands need to lead here or should they be really just sort of reactive and listen to parents because that's maybe in their best interest? I think the evolution has been in the, the perception and the sort of moving away from the extremes. I think it was kind of this, you know, uh, screen time is bad, right? And if yes. you can not have any of it, then you're the best parent ever. If you can get with, you know, a couple hours, it's okay. And then if it's like more than two or three hours in a day, you know, it's it's terrible, right? Yeah. And so we all sort of were the in kids this. Kids are going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> but over the past couple of years, I mean, because of, I mean, for a lot of us, just being forced into needing more screen time than than usual, we sort of, I mean, whether it's coping or, or making, uh, I don't know, excuses for it or, or not, I think we've all been able to see sort of the value in, in the right type of screen time or that not all screen time is created equal. Yeah. Um, so there's the problematic aspects, obviously, where, you know, there's privacy concerns and there's terrorism and all, you know, that extreme. And then there's the, the kind of trashy, just it's not educational. It's sort of just, you know, biding time. Yeah. But then I think there's also the sides of very educational. I mean, we think about whether it's a game that's specifically designed to educate kids or even personal example, my uh, then six-year-old learned state capitals through Ryan's Toy World, which I was not a fan like of watching that, the yeah. Toy Review one, yes. Oh, and yeah. apparently, because he goes on all these trips and talks about the capitals, and she was quoting capitals, like, oh, where did you learn that? She's like, oh, Ryan. So it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe not. She might have just said that to get to watch more of it. But <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's it's really just seeing that the sort of balance, A, yeah. um, I don't think anyone is saying screen time all day, every day, but I think we can see that there is value in certain types and, and you know, it's not all terrible. And I think Gen Alpha yeah. will kind of take that with them as they get older as I, well. I agree. Jesse, what did you find in some of your parenting research in regards to screen time? And what might it, what, what do brands need to think about when they think about this? What, is the, what are the Googles and the Amazons of the world who want eyeballs on their stuff as much as possible need to know, given that, you know, uh, we, we, we still have some reservations about full, full on screen time. So I think for brands always, no, no matter what kind of brand you are, you need to lean into, I got you. Mm -hmm. I understand, right? As I try to pump this product down, you know, into your children's veins, I want to tell you that I am also <laughs> very concerned about yes. the impacts of screen time. Yeah. And I believe that that's true because also these companies are packed with people like you and me, people who have kids, people who have nieces and nephews that they care deeply about. And we've been told, you know, for a decade plus that screen time rots your brain. Right. And the major theme that I've noticed in my research and also just in my life, having friends that were so deeply affected, like Davion's household by the pandemic, is that we've seen institutional failure on every single level. Hmm. So that's schools, hospitals, government, companies, or any kind of organization. And that parents, especially millennial and Gen Z parents, who were the, you know, the big focus of the study that we just completed, have turned to themselves. Hmm. So I, I 
it's more gut than Google, right? Yeah. It's institutions are out, instincts are in. And that parents really feel like they are capable of doing a lot for themselves and making decisions that they used to turn to someone in a position of power before. Yeah. And so I think that that's really affecting how companies think about marketing to these parents now who are saying to them, I don't need you anymore. Yeah. But you left me up a creek, right? I was working a full-time job. Both me and my partner were because who can afford to live anywhere without, you know, two, uh, two income households, certainly in the big cities. Um, and I was a teacher and I was a doctor and I was a Girl Scout leader uh, or, a, you know. Sure. And um, I think that companies are hyper aware of that. And that's why you're seeing so much messaging around. I understand what you're concerned about. But with screen time, I don't even know what to think, frankly, because if Zoom school is OK, you certainly can't be telling sure. me that she can't be on a device for four hours if she's watching Ryan or the kid who yeah. unboxes everything and, you know, teaches you about the world through whatever gifts he's, yeah. you know, buying from this from Japan and whatever. And so these kids know that this is popular in Japan. This is popular in Colombia. Yeah, and in a weird way, and I'm, I'm not at all saying there was a benefit to the pandemic, but... There I was, suspect I there might have been some. Um, you know, we were just talking about sort of twee millennial parenting with blonde wood little toys, and you just want your child to, to write poetry and run in a field all day. <laughs> the pandemic might have killed that, beat to death with an iPad, and ultimately that might be to everybody's, uh, to everybody's benefit. <laughs> um, okay, let's move on to uh, our, our second-to-last signal, if that's okay, Hannah, uh, and talk a little bit more about parenting and, and perhaps in the pandemic how it became so intensive and demanding and as jesse was getting at expensive yes this signal Ooh, i felt seen when i read it <laughs> so we're really discussing here why parenting has become more emotionally draining more time intensive more expensive in, in recent decades i think we've been alluding to this every generation of parents wants the best for their children but for boomer or or gen x parents that might have manifested in focusing on really traditional markers of success you need to get straight a's so that you can get in a good school so that you can get a, a job where you stay for decades to to make a lot of money what we're seeing right now is something that, that studies are, are describing or citing as concerted cultivation. Uh, you might know it is colloquially as helicopter parenting, but it's really about this emphasis on fostering children's talents and equipping them with specific dispositions and social and emotional skills that are going to be valued. I think this tracks with what Jesse and Danny were saying about for millennial parents, this emphasis on what are the soft skills my children need? How do I encourage resilience? in the face of adversity. The thing is that encouraging resilience is a lot more nebulous than encouraging your child to get straight A's. So, you know, this morning I spent a lot of time worrying about whether my child was learning that shooting a basketball and not making it is okay because I want her to know that failure is a part of the process. She's two. I don't know that the lesson is. But we know that millennial parents are spending a lot of time and have a lot of pressure on ensuring how am I creating environment in which my child is really going to flourish, not only academically, not only in terms of getting a, the right school or the right job, but also all of these you know, soft emotional skills, being able to deal with adversity, being confident in themselves. So question for the, the panel, 
why do we think that, that we see this shift with, with millennial parents in particular um, moving away from or, or perhaps still thinking about traditional markers of success, but focusing more on the soft skills, more on ensuring that their children are really growing up uh, emotionally balanced? Mm. Uh, and, you know, given how difficult it is to do that, do we think that we need to, to rethink some of society's expectations of, of what it means to be a, a good parent, you know, one who is ensuring that their child is prepared to take on the world? Uh, Davian, I would love to, to throw this to you to, to weigh in. Like you, Hannah, I also felt seen, and yes, that, <laughs> um, because yes, from the, the carding to three activities per, I feel like, every day of the kids, because you feel like you're trying to constantly kind of keep up, it's, um, it is exhausting, and I think, you know, going back to even, I, I want to sort of cycle back to, to the previous questions around even brand actions around this, because I think what's interesting is, we're spending so much time answering the questions around, is screen time okay? Do I need to have, you know, 10 activities for my kid to be successful and seen? And can they learn to fail without, uh, you know, me putting time or carving time out in the data to teach that? And how can we reshift conversations around sort of saying it's okay, no matter sort of what path you choose and how can brands facilitate that as opposed to even telling us, you know, what the answer is in each of these situations. So I think that's that's where we sort of need to, to push and, and move ourselves because in talking to other parents as well, I think that's the biggest challenge. It's, mm. it's trying, you know, the unknowns and feeling that you're stressing yourself out even more when you're trying to figure out, you know, all of these different questions as opposed to just navigating kind of what's in front of you. Um, I have less of an answer in terms of, of the why. I feel uh -huh. like there's something between maybe the, the, the Gen X and, and being very focused and traditional metrics of success and pushing against that to not feel that way, but also feel like a whole holistic person. Yeah, you know? it seems like there's definitely something around the, the cultural acknowledgement of mental health is yeah. health. Yeah. And we see in the media so often that when mass shootings happen and things like that, it's about someone's mental health. Like somebody's parent didn't do their job. And millennials see that and, and they're reflecting on that and they're trying to make sure that their kid is gonna be okay emotionally because we're, we've all kind of had this awakening over the, the sense of the pandemic, it seems, yeah. that, um, that we have to take care of ourselves emotionally because like Jesse was saying, no one else is going to. I mean, one of the other top parenting books was um, Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. So there is Ooh. this, <laughs> I've read it. Um, there, <laughs> sorry, mom and dad. But I think that there is, there is something to just overall, it's, it's the responsibility that yeah. parents are taking on that they want to make sure that their kid is emotionally well-rounded to be able to handle the world and that they're putting forth the best possible human that they can. Well, I have, I have two thoughts about this. First of all, I, my mom tells this story with like full horror to her baby boomer friends, but the story goes that some baby boomer friend of, her turn, of hers turned to her millennial child and was trying to give this woman advice and the millennial turns to her mother and says, Everything that you know about parenting is wrong. Um, so, you know, the boomers tell, like, whisper this to themselves in horror, but I think it is this idea that millennials do feel, as a generation that spent 
has spent a lot of time staring at ourselves, telling ourselves we're special, that we're a little bit different, that Gen Alpha is going to be different than Gen Z. We're going to do this differently, that there is a sense, I think, that um, you do, just as you were getting at, lack of, you know, you can't necessarily look up to your parents for that information because it's going to feel out of date. And I think the second part that I want to get into is literally our next signal here. Um, because I think we can't have this conversation without talking about that meme culture trend that we saw and the idea that uh, millennials are the first uh, generation of parents who, from the very moment of conception, are dealing with uh, parenting uh, digital advice, right? And then sort of parenting culture online. So um, as we know, one of the most important uh, parts of developing parenting skills is, of course, the act of judging other people's parenting skills. Um, I'm kidding, but obviously judgment is a major part of parenting. So as we think about raising these Gen Alpha kids and doing this all with the internet all around us, um, let's talk about a recent viral Reddit thread where a user got 18,000 upvotes. That's actually a lot of upvotes on, on Reddit. Um, asking for which of today's parenting behaviors the audience, many of whom skew younger, find most annoying and or toxic. Um, so a big trend is never telling your kids no or giving them negative feedback. Social media pops up too with lots of people complaining uh, that some parents use their little ones for digital clout. Uh, gentle parenting, uh, what was that confirmational parent? What, what was that term that you said earlier, uh, Hannah, that we were laughing about? Oh, gosh. Uh, concerted cultivation. Concerted cultivation, helicopter parenting, bulldozer parenting. Do you guys know bulldozer yeah. parenting? It's when you uh, get rid of all the obstacles in your kid's way. Um, and, uh, and, and basically making sure that your children are, are incredibly pampered little gen alpha humans uh, were all really unpopular traits on, on Reddit. Now, I will say, before I even ask the question, I mean, this is in some ways just sitting here as a group of, uh, of researchers and, and people who think about uh, brands and cultural strategy this is that value of studying those meme cultures because memes uh, yeah. and give us the ability to express things that we find ineffable and expressible sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so to look at here and see people talk about what specifically drives them insane about modern parenting, like you can run all the panels you want, Reddit's really your best option. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding a little bit, but I, I guess the question is, do we think millennial parents are going to be judgier of other parents because of social media? And do you think that's going to impact Gen Alpha? I'm going to come out in favor of social media here. And it might be, you know, biased based on my own experiences, first time parent during the pandemic. I spent a lot of time on social media platforms because mommy groups were not a thing during COVID. Yeah. So I had to navigate the terrain of new parenthood via social platforms like this. And what I liked about them is that it exposes you to parents whose views are radically different than yours, right? If you're only hanging out with parents who are in uh, LA, that is going to be a very specific slice of, of parenting, uh, both socioeconomically, in terms of, of values, in terms of how they perhaps have been raised. But, you know, I do think millennial parents have the opportunity to use social spaces like Reddit threads to connect with parents who are coming from a, a wide array uh, mm. of places, of backgrounds, of values. So, you know, this might be a little bit naively optimistic, but I would hope that that experience could allow mm. us to see the world, see our choices from a different perspective and give ourselves a little bit more grace in how we are judging both our own decisions and how we're judging other people's decisions. I love that. I mean, I think I, I, I agree. I think on the, the other side of that, social sort of opens 
up, uh, you know, the, the sort of judgment uh, zone just because people are, are much more um, aware in terms of what other people are doing. I mean, obviously, people can put out what they'd like to, but even think about the pandemic and judgment of when people sent their kids to daycare or to right. school yeah. or were allowing their kids to socialize with other kids or go to different places. So I think, you know, there is that, you know, in terms of opening yourself up to different styles and being more accepting. But I think also in the sort of access that people have or that people give to the way that they parent, the way that they live, there is also sort of that you know, you're putting yourself out right. there in terms of what you're doing and others are going to agree or not agree or even if they're not necessarily vocalizing it. Do you think that means people then when, because when, you're right about putting yourself out there, do you think that's going to make in some ways millennial parents a little more conservative and therefore impact the way Gen Alpha sees social media? Or no, they're going to live in such a world of social media where they, it's, it's so omnipresent that there's no... <laughs> There's no nuance. <laughs> That's interesting. I think in ways, I think we, as parents, and everyone's obviously different. We can't speak for all millennial parents, but I think that in, in times we're more conservative than we let on. Hmm. I think that I can say for, you know, even just parents that I've experienced and it's, you know, that are liberal minded, but have, you know, and think of themselves as not the helicopter parent and would disagree with the concerted cultivation in theory. But then when you see some of the actions sure. and choices and conversations. It's a little bit different. Yeah. Jesse, what are you thinking? So I, completely with you, and I, I'm a staunch liberal of the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, but someone who works in conservative media. So every day I'm approached, and I'm putting that kindly, with ideas that don't make a lot of sense to me fundamentally, but one that I have to grapple with mm -hmm. and in a public forum and really think so carefully about the words that I'm using, because that's the number one way that these conversations end, right? That people use aggressive language. Sure. And you always have to start with, I completely know, I completely understand where you're coming from, et cetera, to then be able to get anywhere. And as a new parent and watching my sister has a little boy who's turning two, so similar to you, Hannah, complete pandemic baby and pre-vaccine even, so yeah. really living in complete isolation in L.A. if you guys want to get together, by the way. Um, <laughs> You're looking for that mommy group. Yep. But I 100% think that people are more conservative, liberals are more conservative than they're letting on, and nothing will change the way that a person behaves or how they see their communities and places that they work and their government officials more than if their child has been negatively impacted. Yeah. And you look at something like the mask mandate for kids. I mean, this is something that has turned my most liberal friends into right-wing flamethrowers. Uh. And they're, they're posting all over their social media, unmask my kids. This is completely unethical. And the studies that have come out about the social and developmental challenges that have happened. I mean, I watched my baby less than six months old and she's already mirroring what I'm doing with my mouth, right? She's talking, she's not saying anything obviously, but she knows that lips move to make sound to yeah. come out. And if I had a mask on, she wouldn't be able to see that. And I know a lot of parents, like I said, who were mad at the daycare centers. I have friends who do not want to vaccinate their children. They do not feel like there is enough information out there. The vaccine's been around long enough. And these are people who have never ticked a Republican box in their entire yeah. lives. And they're just saying, well, what about myocarditis? What about increased risk of blood clots in young boys? And all these questions, they have to be able to be asked. Right. And that can go on in social media and you can find communities for it. 
and we are becoming so much more decentralized, which I think is a net benefit, actually, with these kinds of big topics. Because if you're on a steady diet of the New York Times only, and maybe I pop over to New York Mag for, yeah. you know, a hit of something fun. Or any fabulous like, uh, <laughs> publication. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, no, well, I don't uh, want to put us, because it's something that's very important to our founder, Brian Goldberg, that we represent all political point of yeah. views. And one of the central reasons that my role at Fox News is so valuable to us as an organization, I mean, we ha- are, you know, very popular in New York and Los Angeles, but we're popular in Wisconsin. We're popular in Texas. Danny's from Wisconsin. <laughs> Shout out. Um, and that's because our coverage isn't single-minded about, you know, this is like the liberal cool way to do things. Yeah. It's like these are ideas that are out here, there, and they're, they're more valuable for parents, I think, than any other demographic because your kid, you don't know who they're going to be, what they're going to be yeah. interested in. And what worked for me, the path that I went through, which I think, you know, it brought me here, so obviously my mom did something right. I don't know if that's going to be what's right yeah. for my baby. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think, just very quickly, first of all, very well said, and thank you for sharing that. I mean, it, it's really interesting to think that we're, we're talking about, like, the like conservative, in some ways, small-c conservative parenting of, uh, of, of left-wing bourgeois millennial parents who are, like, terrified that their kid's ever going to encounter, like, unwashed spinach. And then also, in some ways, the, like, ultra, you know, traditional description of what liberal means to let your six-year-old go shooting, right? I mean, that is uh, yeah. a level of, uh, and that happens away from, uh, from sort of these, you know, white-collar zones that we all live in. And I think, I think you're totally right. I think there are moments where we are uh, much more conservative than we think, much more liberal than we think. And I actually think if I can play amateur anthropologist here for a second... This isn't new behavior. People have been judging the way that the lady at the next cave over was raising her kids (laughs) for, you know, you're going to let them play with mastodons? You know, they were doing that for (laughs) for 20,000 years. And I just think the difference now is that you can have that conversation with someone in L.A., with someone in Singapore, uh, you know, with with someone in, in India. And perhaps the opportunity for us both culturally and as people who work in, in brands and, and, and advertising and media is to give people the spaces and the, and the tools to make the most of that openness. We're never going to stop judging, you know, parents are always going to judge each other, right? But can you find a space where you find not only uh, supported, but perhaps even moments where you can expose yourself to, to new ideas or to challenge some of your preconceptions? And that's the best part of judgmental parenting, not necessarily just the funny stuff that you read online. Um, and with that, I'm going to get off my little soapbox here and we should do some, some wrap-ups. Um, uh, Davian, I'm going to start with you here. We talked about uh, in the intro question about challenges and opportunities mm-hmm. facing uh, millennial parents and their Gen Alpha kids. What was a standout either challenge or, or opportunity for you uh, in today's conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the the sort of holistic recognition of, of all of the things, whether it's screen time or just methods of parenting, that nothing is in the, the absolute or the extreme. And sort of, as you, I think, well put uh, just a few moments ago, sort of finding your, your safe space, if you will, as a parent, uh, you know, and, and doing what you can, obviously, to support, to support your kids, to keep them safe, um, but not over-relying on any anyone else, whether that's other parents, you know, what you read, corporations to necessarily get involved. But I think it's, you know, really carving out your own perspectives and not being too, honestly, hard on yourself yeah. in either way, because ultimately that's what it comes down to in all of these things of just letting go sometimes. Yeah, totally. Well, okay, so Danny, we've talked about 
a bunch of different trends here today, meme culture, Kadult. Which of the trends do you think are, if, if, you had to, if you had to tell a brand to activate on one of these today, what, which one do you think really speaks most to, to our conversation? And, and I would actually forward? say taboo toppling. Oh, okay, I love that. Because this is something that Jesse was talking about in their research that was coming out, right? Like parents are saying, I can do this on my own. Homeschooling, for example. A few Kids. years ago, Homeschooled kids were weird kids, yeah. and now it's a growing community, right? Um, so I think taboo toppling is the one that brands should really take a closer look at in terms of the decisions that parents are making for their children. Love that. Um, and, and Jesse, last word to you. Um, you know, you, we, we've, we've heard a lot of really interesting insights. I've loved the data and research that you've brought to us today. Is there any particular... Um, I don't know, is there any particular grain, kernel of truth or, or, or insight that you feel like brands or organizations specifically watching today, thinking about what does parenting mean to us? What's a, what's a, what's a big, bold insight maybe for them to, to take away from this conversation? A couple of things that I think are really important. So looping back to what I was saying about institutional breakdown and that parents are leaning into their instincts over the conventional paths. Um, so that allows brands to do big, bold thinking yeah. and also to mess up. And that was another huge finding um, from the research. We had uh, 64% of our respondents preferred unapologetic honesty to cancel culture. 82% think that cancel culture is shutting down culturally valuable conversations. And 55% of Zs and millennials are afraid of being canceled themselves. Hmm. And we do a lot of consulting work, my group at at BDG with brands to say, you know, we have this issue, right? Like one of our creators did something that is not going over well on Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is, and, you know, work with them through that. I don't know, you guys do similar kind of work. And the amount of times that I have said, do not freak out. <laughs> um, I, I can't even count that high. Um, <laughs> that people are a lot more willing to hear out a different perspective Love than you think. Um, yeah. And I think that's especially true with parents who also know that, the system we have now is unsustainable. College can't cost $78,000 a year by the time our kids are, are in college. And you can go and live in the Bahamas and be a crypto bro yeah. and do really well for yourself. Well, you could, you and could as of two months ago, but yeah. <laughs> there are a lot more options for Gen Alphas about what to do with their lives. Totally. Uh, love that. Guys, this was an amazing conversation. Uh, a, 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 a extra stuffed briefing. Um, I suspect we could go on for another hour. I, I don't want to leave. Uh, well, 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 we'll just have to do this again. Um, I want to give a, a big shout-out to my co-briefer for the yeah. day, Hannah, uh, Danny, Davion. Jesse, thank you for, for joining us. As well. Literally, you're going to have to come back. This has been so I'm fun. Here. Yes. And I'm in the neighborhood. Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> walk, walk right on over. Uh, thank you for joining us today. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on our LinkedIn page. While you're there, jump in the comment section. Let us know your thoughts on today's subject. I suspect there are a lot <laughs> about this particular subject. If you're interested in Q, the cultural intelligence platform we use to build today's briefings, it gives us great quantitative and qualitative rigor when we look at subjects as, as complex as parenting or as simple as figuring out, I don't know, uh, what's this? <laughs> Everything today was complicated. <laughs> um, but if you'd like a demo, please feel free to reach out. We would love to give it to you. So until next week, Consider yourselves briefed.